This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to My Tale to Tell, bringing you life stories from the varied and diverse people who live in Canterbury, New Zealand. All of these stories are read by those who wrote them as part of a Writing Your Memoir workshop and they have kindly agreed to share them with you. For privacy reasons, some of the names have been changed. Some language may offend and some content may shock you. But no life is ordinary. We all have a tale to tell. I'm Isabel and this is my tale to tell. An aunt to love. Let me tell you about Arun, our Guinness part-sized Irish aunt with orange hair and a quiet charm that endeared her to our family and everyone who had the fortune to meet her. Arun met our Uncle Martin in the Amazon jungle. It was love at first sight, at least for Martin. Arun never said, but then she never spoke about herself. So what I'm going to tell you is gleaned from others as well as Robert and me spending time with her. Haroon was born on the 16th of November, 1903, at Earlscraft, Belfast, to Gwendolyn Joan and Andrew Piers. The homestead is no longer there, and we're not sure if Haroon grew up there. We know that her mother lived at Ardenley House, Clough, County Down, when Arun was in the army, and that Ardenley House is now a public park and gardens. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Arun's family were of the landed gentry, originally from England, and well-to-do. Gwendolyn tried her best to make her only child into a lady. Arun, however, was an outdoors girl. She liked horse riding, tramping in the Mourne Mountains, as well as painting them. She didn't care for being a lady in fashionable clothes. An only child, and perhaps a lonely child. Arun's parents had a Church of Ireland wedding. However, When Arun was one year old, Andrew, her father, wanted her to be christened in the Catholic Church. We are told no more than that Gwendolyn refused, and Andrew left never to be seen again. Gwendolyn didn't marry again, and so Arun grew up without other siblings or a father. She had her mother, servants, and her mother's sister, who would visit them on their estate. The Tate family were dying out. Gwendolyn's only sister didn't have children. Arun was the last of her line. We're not sure what kind of education Arun had, but my sympathies are with her tutor if she had one. She would have charmed her way out of schoolwork to do something much more fun like playing or drawing or painting, 
perhaps fossicking for pretty stones or tadpoles by the stream. As I hinted before, Arun became a missionary to the Indian tribes in the Amazon jungle when she was in her 20s. She did meet Uncle Martin in a clearing. He was there as a missionary and no doubt feeling lonely and prayed that God would send him a wife. And out of the jungle came this petite redhead on horseback with a sheathed knife in her belt. Martin said, That's my kind of gal, and the rest is history. When World War II occurred, Martin and Arun had to leave Brazil and return to Britain. They enlisted in the army and served until the war ended. Arun was based in Scotland and Martin was based in England. Martin arrived to work in Brazil whilst Arun stayed behind in Northern Ireland to care for her mother, who was by then elderly. Arun had ceased to manage the household estate, and so it was sold. The bills were paid, and a smaller house was bought where Gwendolyn and they lived when Martin retired from the Amazon. After Gwendolyn died, Martin and Arun decided to move to New Zealand. Arun continued to bring delight in New Zealand until she was 92, when she died peacefully with us by her side. But that's a whole story in itself for another time, perhaps. My name is Lynette. This is my tale to tell, naughty, naughty. All my three children left home at 18 years to go to university in Dunedin, and I think I thought, great, that's our part done. They can look after themselves now. In late 2006 and late in the evening, I got the phone call, every parent dreads. I need to go to hospital, my 26-year-old daughter, who was a microbiologist, said, and they are saying everybody needs to come. I knew my daughter had been unwell as she had stayed with us the week before on her way back to Dunedin from a holiday in Auckland. The holiday that was supposed to restore her to good health, but when she got back to work on the Monday and locked down the microscope, she realised all was not well as she couldn't see properly. She had run me during the day to say she was having blood tests done. That night she was admitted to Dunedin Hospital. The next morning I flew down and my husband drove down, and I arrived just in time to see her having a lumbar puncture in which a needle is inserted into the spinal canal to collect fluid for testing. She was diagnosed with aplastic anemia, which is a rare blood disorder when there is a failure of bone marrow to produce sufficient blood cells. My sons were both students in Dunedin and had a flat close to the hospital. We went and bought an airbed and slept in their lounge. They were thrilled. Both her brothers were tested for bone marrow match and our youngest son was a perfect match. The next weekend we returned home and our daughter started several different treatments over the next few months, including lots of blood transfusions to keep her red blood count up. In March of 2007, we got the good news, bad news phone call. Bad news, she needed a bone marrow transplant. Good news, she was coming to Christchurch. At the time, it all sounded quite simple. Six weeks in hospital, six weeks recovery. She was young, fit, and her brother was a perfect match. What could go wrong? My daughter was worried because she had always had a weak stomach and trouble swallowing pills. 
When she arrived in Christchurch, she had MRSA, which is a superbug, as it is resistant to commonly used antibiotics. And if you're in hospital and have an X-ray and ultrasounds, everything has to be wiped down afterwards. So before going into her room, we had to gown and mask up. My son flew to Christchurch for a day to see doctors and have more tests and visit a doctor who made sure he knew what he was in for. As often it is worse for the donor than the recipient. At Easter, the bone marrow transplant took place. Not as spectacular as it sounds. By evening, my son was complaining he was bored and they let him go home and two days later he went back to Dunedin. The chemotherapy took a heavy toll on my daughter's body and made her vomit most of the time. It had also damaged her lungs and heart, although these organs eventually repaired themselves. After several weeks, my daughter was ready to come home and was placed in a room with several other patients. At 4.30am the next morning, she suffered a seizure and I got the phone call saying, your daughter has become very unwell overnight and wants you. Another phone call to Dunedin to her partner's boss asking if she could come to Christchurch. During the next few days, my daughter became very unwell, suffering several more seizures and I think I saw nearly every department in the hospital. She was then diagnosed with TTP, which is short for a long, unpronounceable blood disorder and if you get it post-transplant, it's different than getting it without a transplant. One of those times you shouldn't have Googled something medical, but it still didn't prepare me for the meeting where we were told it had a very high mortality rate. At one stage I said, do you think there's something wrong with her speech? And there was, however, luckily this returned to normal. After having a biopsy out in her lungs, the surgeon came and spoke to me, saying, did I think she was depressed? I just smiled and said, probably, thinking if you had been through what she has been through, you would be depressed too. All those weeks she was vomiting constantly and it took an age to take her pills and she just seemed to finish taking one lot and it would be time for the next round. I wasn't sure how much benefit she was getting from them as she was vomiting so much. When she was at her lowest she was giving them intravenously. It was good with her medical background she could explain to us what the doctors were talking about and also tell the nurse didn't they stop that pill this morning as she didn't want to take any more pills than necessary. Each time they brought her medication, she would count the pills to make sure there were no extras. Mother, being ever helpful, suggested perhaps they could crush the pills and put them in her food, not that she was eating much. Never in my wildest dreams did I think they would crush them all. When I arrived the next morning, there was a large bowl of food and crushed pills with crushed pills mixed in. I thought they would just do a couple as a trial. She did try and eat some, and then I got rid of the rest. I was sure it was the same with her vomiting straight after she'd taken them and it was the only time I ever interfered with her medication. They tried a new drug and at one stage they had four pumps pumping medication into her. Something must have worked as 14 weeks after she entered hospital she was able to leave. A few weeks later she had 10 days in hospital again and in October she went back to Dunedin. When on leaving hospital after her 10 day stay, she said, thank goodness we are leaving as I didn't want to die alone. It made me happy that all the times I had spent the day, evening and even some nights there worth it. The following year she moved to Christchurch for better medical help and job opportunities as her and her partner were working for the same company. She was the subject of a paper in the medical journal for the drug they used to fight the TTP, and which is one of the ones that I didn't get rid of. 
seasons in one day Lying in the depths of your imagination Worlds above and worlds below The sun shines on the black clouds hanging over the... My name is Karen and this is my tale to tell. I remember when Diana, Princess of Wales, died along with her lover Dodi Al-Fayed in a car accident on 31st of August 1997. They crashed in a road tunnel in Paris while fleeing from the paparazzi. We had heard a radio news report a little earlier that day which said she'd been injured in a car accident. It was one of those events when you remember exactly where you were when you heard about it. I distinctly remember we were driving down Colombo Street and were stopped at the Bailey Ave traffic lights when the four o'clock news on the car radio reported that Diana had passed away from the injuries she had sustained in the crash. It was a shock. Injured is one thing, but Diana did. We were almost home and I felt quite upset. Diana had been in the media spotlight almost constantly for so long, hounded by the press. Details of her personal life splashed on so many magazine covers for years now that I felt as though I almost knew her personally. There was a lot of public anger towards the paparazzi. Many people felt the accident wouldn't have happened had she not been constantly pursued so relentlessly. There was ill feeling felt towards the Queen in the days to follow for her perceived lack of compassion in not issuing a public statement about Diana's passing. It seemed quite heartless of her not to publicly acknowledge Diana's untimely death, considering she was the mother of two of the Queen's grandsons, one of them a likely future king. Diana's funeral was televised a week later and we had some friends over to watch it at our place. It was particularly hard watching Princes William and Harry walking behind their mother's coffin, looking so stoic but feeling so lost and utterly heartbroken. There was hardly a dry eye in our living room as the camera zoomed in on her coffin, laden with white flowers and a card from Prince Harry which said simply, Mummy. Everyone felt so sorry for her two young sons, aged only 12 and 15, who would now have to grow up without their mother, who had clearly adored them. Diana considered herself the people's princess, and on her death at just 36 years old, the people, including myself, really were very sad. Come away with me in the night Come away with me and I will Come away with me on a bus Come away where they came I am Heather and this is my tale to tell My mother, Clytie Clytie, my mother, was born in 1908 on March the 23rd, the only child of Robert Howie, Scottish Presbyterian descent and Frances Eva Taylor, Scottish Cornish descent, but the Scottish part was probably Catholic while in Scotland and then changed to Protestant when they emigrated to New Zealand. My sister Coral's investigations had revealed that an ancestor in Glasgow was buried in a lair. That sounds like a wolf's lair in the Roman Catholic part of the cemetery. She was named by her father for a Greek nymph, When she was 10, her parents divorced. Although Robert, like his family, had, when younger, signed the pledge to never touch alcohol, he had become an alcoholic and a compulsive gambler. He was a carpenter builder by trade. As a result of the divorce, 
Eva returned to live with her parents, taking Clytie with her. These grandparents comprised a Scottish father and a Cornish mother. They were kind, indulgent grandparents. While a child, Clytie was allowed to keep Pomeranian dogs, which she bred from. She spent much of her time with the dogs, often lying on the ground with her head in the kennel to watch the puppies. As a result of this, she developed hydatids, which was a lethal disease spread by the dog tapeworm. Many sufferers had repeated operations to remove the cysts. They also died. When she was a young adult, possibly around 20, she got pneumonia and then a big hemorrhage from her lungs. And in nothing short of a miracle, it flooded all the cysts out and she was not bothered by hydatids again. Clytie was mostly self-educated because her mother was convinced she was too delicate for school. She spent only a little time at school. Obviously, truancy was something you could get away with in those days. But piano lessons were paid for with a Madame Croucher, who was said to be a German aristocrat. Clytie kept her friendship with Madame Croucher for all of Croucher's life. While still in her teens, she became a piano teacher herself. One of her many boyfriends taught her to drive, and as a young married woman, she bought a baby Austin car and felt incredibly glamorous and independent. She was just a few weeks from her wedding to Wallace when she met my father on a blind date. As a result, she dumped Wallace. My father was the dashing son of his successful businessman father. The Dickenses were well known in Christchurch in the 20s and 30s. George wooed her in a big new Hudson car in which he had vases in its sides in the saloon and he had fresh flowers in these. Clytie was creative and talented. Without training, she created dresses, even hats, and sought to write books. She got turned down by publishers, but they sent her suggestions of how to frame it in a commercial way. I doubt that she tried to comply. She wrote hymns, and again, without training, had a sideline business in the 30s and 40s of altering fur coats. Her mother, Eva, had a shop, but Eva was so introverted that she usually locked the door and had closed on the card. She stayed within the shop with her pretty Pomeranian dog, Bicky, and looking out through the window, but trying to avoid customers. Clytie and Eva were opposites. Eva was stately and gentle, but with a temper, and Clytie was extrovert and volatile. They often rowed, but always loved each other. Clytie was unusual for her period. She was successful as a businesswoman and never ceased to sneer at her husband for being not only the son of the founder, but the stalwart who ran nearly everything in that business, but was paid a small wage. To Clytie, only cash mattered, and she made his life hell about this. She had no concept of family pride and what her ideas would lead to. Eventually she succeeded and the family 
years after my grandfather's heart attack that killed him in Latimer Square itself, and the business and buildings were sold off. The Dickinson brothers took invaluable pieces to the dump, and so it was all gone, and my father, George, drank himself to death. He pulled the plug in a car in the garage. As a carbon monoxide corpse, he looked fresh and alive, with pink cheeks and happy. And that was what my grandfather's efforts and dreams had led to. Whenever Clytie got her hands on anything, including the will of her own father's, who left much to me and my sister, but Clytie successfully contested it. Or mother and stepfather's legacy, when that involved property, it led to immediate sale and then got spent. But she had much love for her family, including a weird, intense love for her son, also George. So she was really complex. My name is Lynette. This is my tale to tell, freedom to be myself. It's only in the last few years that I've had the freedom to be myself, and then it's not as much freedom as I would like, partly because of my personality and partly circumstances. When I was a child in the 1950s, there was no freedom to be myself. My father ruled the family and even cut our hair. Our haircuts were certainly unique, and no one else had a haircut like ours at school. Because my sister was 18 months older than me, often we were dressed in the same clothes, especially when we went on outings. My father also decided when we went to high school what subjects we would take. Homecraft and clothing were his choice for my sister and myself, so we would make someone a good wife. Perhaps it would have been best for me to take technical drawing as I went on to become a structural engineering draftswoman. In the 1970s, this was all done manually. It was during the 1980s that computer programs were introduced. When I got married, I was so busy working, and then I had three children to take care of, and I never seemed to be able to say the word no, so I was constantly on the go, being on several different committees helping out at activities the children did, and for several years a care scout leader. Then in the early 2000s I was finally able to find some time to be myself, and when I was painting a picture it was one of the few times that I felt that I had freedom to be myself. Painting a picture for me means I can paint my favourite things and use vibrant colours. My favourite paintings when I was an artist were brightly coloured flowers, larger than life, I spent many hours in my studio being free from interruptions of life until one day in September 2010 we had a large earthquake and after that time I have very rarely painted and I have lost my desire to paint. Although I have tried to get back into painting I have now moved into my freedom of being creative to quilt making.
My Tale to Tell is produced by me, Stephanie Fruin, and engineered by Peter Rattray at Plains FM Christchurch. The theme tune was composed by Louise Ayling and performed by Louise Ayling, Peter Royal and Stephanie Fruin. If you'd like to take part in My Tale to Tell, contact mytaletotellnz at gmail.com. No life is ordinary. We all have a tale to tell. Memories of us.